It's great to be back up here this morning. It's been uh, like three weeks now, and uh, maybe forgot what I'm doing. Uh, I think I've done this enough that I'll maybe get back into the flow here. But uh, that phrase, the resurrection, is an undeniable fact formed by an undeniable design that leads to an undeniable reality is hopefully something that we say enough that it'll like come to you right when you're driving down the road on a Wednesday morning and be like, man, I can't get that out of my head. But that's what we're focusing on this, these three weeks. We want to just uh, understand better what this season means. Allow ourselves to be reminded or maybe even uh, a new angle or uh, a deeper understanding of what, what, what do we do around here and why is Easter such a big deal and, you know, why do we just seem to, like, get the most excited about that day? And as last week, <clears throat> Ken laid the foundation that the resurrection is an undeniable fact. <clears throat> Remember, we've used a scripture after his suffering. Uh, he showed himself alive through many convincing proofs that he was alive. And in fact, here's the statement. The resurrection is the most proven historical fact in the history of the ancient world. He did it. It's not a myth. It's not a legend that a bunch of people made up. It's not some kind of well-concocted plan. It's not for people who are maybe, you know, they need a crutch in life or they're weak-minded so they need something to believe in. And so they're going to go with this story. And I'm telling you today, based on anything that anybody wants to use to prove, did something really happen? The resurrection is the most proven historical fact in the history of the ancient world. I never saw Abraham Lincoln. I guess I don't believe he lived. I didn't see him. Of course I believe Abraham Lincoln lived. Why? Because there was a ton of eyewitness accounts to his life. And they wrote down, hey, Abraham Lincoln said this. Abraham Lincoln did this. And we all, every one of us today, believe Abraham Lincoln lived, right? Don't raise your hand if you don't. Because we're all going to look at you a little bit different. Right? We have to, we weren't there, but what, what I'm telling you, I mean, there's like over 25,000 documents, documents that we all would use, like, okay, so Alexander the Great lived because this was, an, it's a credible source. The resurrection is the, it's, it's the most proven historical fact in the ancient world. It happened. It happened. Fact. Undeniable So, since Jesus was was resurrected, then he is who he said he was. And if he was who he said he was, then everything he said and everything about him has to be true. And because that is true, that affects everyone. 
And what we're trying to remind you of is, I'm sure people who don't know about Jesus or look at Christian people, they haven't really considered the, 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 the ramifications of the resurrection. Probably most of them think it's just something we lean on and really didn't happen. Are you kidding me? No one rises from the dead. I've never seen that, never even close to that, right? <clears throat> it's an undeniable fact. It happened. And because it happened, it means everything. It changes everything. And you and I aren't just believing in some kind of fairy tale or fable or myth. We believe in the most proven historical fact in the history of the ancient world. And man, because that happens, that changes everything for me. How I think this guy is for real. I better pay attention to what he says. So when he says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but through me. Fact, truth. Because guess what? He backed all of that up by doing what no one else could do, and that is being raised from the dead. He raised himself from the dead. Undeniable fact, right? You don't want me to preach Ken's sermon again, right? Some of you are like, would you just move on with this? So let's move to the second part, undeniable design. The undeniable fact, that's great, it happened, it means everything. In fact, it's, it's, my whole thinking should be arranged around that. Whoa, this guy rose from the dead. He claims to be the savior of the world, the only way to connect with God. Really, he says that if you want to experience the life that you were designed, created to have, if you want to experience uh, a restored life, uh, a life that's uh, uh, it's, it's, it's full, of the things that we desire most, love, joy, peace, all those things, it's in Jesus Christ. He claims that he's the source of all that. And then guess what? He backed it up by raising from the dead and it happened, I know it happened. Fact, that's awesome, but guess what? There's something even better beyond that. It gets a little deeper. It was formed by an undeniable design. Fact, cool, design, even cooler. And it's this way. The whole narrative of the Old Testament points to one thing, a resurrected Messiah. I I love movies like, um, oh, I happened to be flipping through the channels the other day, and and this movie I'd never really seen from like, I know you're going to laugh, the 80s. (laughs) It was, it was based on the board game Clue, right? Everybody's played Clue, yes? Well, they made a movie based on, the, I guess, Clue because I recognized it quickly as I was watching it for a little bit. I thought, well, that's the game Clue, right? Because we had lead pipes and wrenches and candlesticks. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody play that game Clue? Yeah, even teenagers, you guys get that game? You know that game? I love those kind of movies, those kind of, I love a movie where I'm totally caught off guard right at the end, and it's like this ingenious plan was all the way through. And it's like you walk away and you think, oh, 
that's why they said that, or that's why that happened. It all makes sense because now I see it, this design, how it came out. Well, guess what? That's the Old Testament. It's pointing toward one thing. If you're like me, the Old Testament, for me in my early life, it was all about things like Daniel in the lion's den or Moses in the Red Sea, or David and Goliath, or Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and, and fire from heaven. and um, It was all that stuff, right? And it helped form my, my understanding about a God who can do anything, and looks out for people, and cares, and all those things. And, and, and yet, as I grew older, I began to see the Old Testament a little bit differently. I thought, wow, what is all this stuff I'm reading? Because I get in there and it's like this law and this regulation and this rule and these things. And a lot of times it's talking about stuff that I'm like, really? I, what? You know, like uh, you could open your Bible right now and in Leviticus you could read you're not supposed to wear clothing that has mixed textures. You know, I'm like, really? My polyester cotton blend. I'm out. I'm, God's not in favor of that. And I'm, uh, what? What's going on here? It doesn't, it doesn't even connect with my world. I don't, I'm like, probably like most of you, I'm just like, whoop. Let's go to the Psalms or let's go to another one of those great stories. But I would tell you that the Old Testament, when we understand what it's trying to do, it becomes apparent to us, oh my goodness. <laughs> it's undeniable that God designed all the Old Testament to point to one thing. Jesus Christ. And I want to unpackage that just a little bit this morning. Um, it's First Peter that says this. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed with from the empty life that you had that was given to you by your ancestors. But the life you have is because of the precious blood of Christ. He was a lamb without blemish or defect. Here's a key phrase. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but he was revealed in these last times. And then it goes on to affirm his death and resurrection. He was chosen from the creation of the world, before the creation of the world. But it's only been revealed here. Oh, you mean... God always had a plan, knew what he was doing, designed it perfectly to bring Jesus. Yes, that's what he's saying. In fact, listen to Jesus himself. Uh, he's trying to explain to his disciples. He's just talked to two guys on the road to Emmaus, this town Emmaus, who were discouraged because they had followed Jesus. Now he's dead, and they think it's over, and he opens their hearts. And, and then he does this again with the disciples, and he says this. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me. Where? Law of Moses, prophets, Psalms. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What were the scriptures? The Old Testament. He explains to them the Old Testament. And he told them this is what it's always pointed to. Jesus himself. This is what has been written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and he'll give forgiveness of sins. And you're gonna get to witness this. You see, God always had a design, a plan in mind. 
And the more we see it through the Old Testament, we begin to see it's undeniable. He pointed, he put all of his eggs in the Jesus basket, and then when Jesus came, he paid it off. He made it happen, he validated it, and it's all for real. Um, Genesis chapter three, three chapters in, just starting to read the Bible. You see the fall of man, right? And you see these people who had a relationship with their creator. They've broken it by their, their willful act of disobedience. And, and now the fellowship's broken. But guess what? Genesis chapter 3. We already are starting to read words like this. I, the Lord, is going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And that he will crush the serpent's head and he will strike his, he will strike it with his heel. In other words, he's already promising that this one who has fooled you, the one who has caused you, I'm going to defeat and the sin in this world, I'm gonna crush it just as somebody with their heel would crush something. I've already got a plan in place. It's going to be okay. And then through the Old Testament, we see that design worked out. So why don't we go through this just for a little bit, right? Are we good with that? Okay. The first thing I notice is this undeniable design. The first thing I notice is provision. In the Old Testament, there's this, this, this concept or this way God is showing people that he's a God who provides something. He's a God who provides. And he keeps showing this over and over and over again because he's trying to make us realize that the God who provides is going to point everything to the ultimate provision that we would ever need. That's his son, Jesus Christ. Remember the story in Genesis chapter 22. Um, anybody? No, I'm teasing. I'm just messing with you. Yeah, I know that. No. Um, Genesis 22. Abraham. You remember Abraham? Abraham. <clears throat> uh, uh, God calls him out. He starts his plan, really, or is a big part of his plan. He's getting it going. I'm going to start this nation who I'm going to bring Jesus through. I'm going to reveal myself to the world and ultimately bring Jesus through this race. And, and Abraham's the, the patriarch of all that. And he calls Abraham out. And it's, he's the example of faith for us. He's, the, he's the, the person we look to. Wow, that guy, he believes God. I mean, it's unbelievable. He calls Abraham, the scriptures say Abraham goes from what he knew to what he didn't know. He went to a land he didn't know. He believed God, he trusted God. And, uh, and so part of the plan was God had promised Abraham, I'm gonna make you the father of a great nation. I know you don't have kids now, Abraham, but I'm going to do it. But then God decided to wait for a lot of years. Remember that? And Sarah was barren, she couldn't have kids. And Abraham and Sarah have to go through that whole um, uh, that whole deal of, of, of God, are you gonna come through? Or, uh, okay, so we're getting up here in years. You promised we left everything to believe in this, and now, and, and God is always faithful. It comes through. Abraham's 100 years old. Sarah's 75, and they have Isaac, right? And it's like, oh, here we go. <clears throat> God's come through in a, in a miracle kind of way, um, I don't know, I, 75-year-olds having kids. I, don't, I read the other day maybe a 59-year-old, but 75, it's really kind of miraculous, is it not? And he's come through, he's done it in the way he does, he provides, and, and then, so their life's starting, and it's gonna be great, and 
It's coming to pass. And then God does this in Genesis chapter 22. He says, or Abraham, I want you to take Isaac. And I want you to go on a trip. I want you to go to the Mount Moriah. And Isaac, I want you to sacrifice your son. Or Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac. If you're like me, it's one of the most startling um, stories in all the Old Testament. I've probably thought about it as much as anything else. And Abraham just trusted God implicitly. He said, okay. No doubt he's thinking, what in the world is going on? I had to wait till 100 for the promised son, and now you want me to give him in a sacrifice? The scriptures later tell us that Abraham just believed that God was truth to his promise so much that he thought, you know what? If I sacrifice Isaac, God will just raise him from the dead right in front of me. He just believed God so much. And you remember they go on that journey and the details are even something that you think about of what's Isaac thinking, you know? And, and then Isaac does ask, well, God, or Abraham, we've got wood or we've got fire, we've got everything, but where's the animal that we're supposed to sacrifice? And, and, um, and Abraham, you know, responds and, and finally they get to the altar and, and Isaac is on the altar, which I, I still am befuddled. A man, Isaac really trusted his dad, Right? I think if you had started putting me on the altar, I'd have been gone. I can outrun the 100-year-old man. <laughs> really, I mean, to think that he allowed it. And you remember as, I, as Abraham went to take the knife that the Lord spoke to him and said, no, I tested your faith. There's a ram in the thicket. But in that story, there's this phrase Abraham utters, and it's this. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God himself will provide. You begin to see that through the story and the narrative of the Old Testament. There's the story of Moses, and, and uh, you remember Prince of Egypt Stands up for his people and kills one of the Egyptians. Has to flee Pharaoh. Spends 40 years on the backside of the desert. Thinks he's done. Thinks his life's over. 80 years old. He sees a burning bush. God calls to him. Finally convinces him. No, you're the guy that's supposed to lead my people that I started with Abraham who are now slaves in Egypt. You're the guy to lead them out. Go back. So Moses finally after some arguing goes back. And you remember he, he goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, let, let the people go. No, plague. Let the people go. No, plague. You remember, plague after plague after plague until finally the Lord says, listen, the plan I have designed, it's gonna happen. I'm gonna make it happen. And so Moses, this last plague, it's, and so what I'm gonna do is I'm going to slay every firstborn son in Egypt so that he will finally get it through his hard head to let these people go. They're far more trouble than they're worth. You remember that story? And here's, what, how, here's how they knew, because there was a ton of people, a ton of Israelites. And Moses instructed from the Lord, he said, listen, the way that the angel of, that will slay each firstborn will not do it in that house is if you push blood over the doorstep. And he will pass over, he will pass over that house, right? This is so foreign to us, isn't it? Like, wow, what world were they in? 
But this is what happened. And um, you remember that that happened that night and, and if you had the blood on the doorpost, you were passed over and they were able to leave that night and it's considered their great exodus. And in fact, every year, they celebrated the Passover feast, right? They celebrated the fact that God had provided a way for them. He provided. And in fact, Jesus, when he came into Jerusalem on that last week, he came during the Passover feast. It's so, it's, it's on purpose, guys. It's designed that way because he's trying to show us once again that I'm gonna be the one who's gonna provide a way for you so that the punishment and the penalty of your sin is passed over because of the blood of Jesus in your life. And so we see this all through the Old Testament, this narrative, even that, that story, you know, John chapter three, we read, for God so loved the world, and it's that important stuff that we, we see. But two verses before that, uh, John uses this phrase, he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up on the cross, is what he's saying. And you're like, well, what's that? And once again, in the Old Testament, um, Moses has the children of Israel. They're going to the promised land. God's providing everything for them. Remember the pillar and the cloud and, and destroying the Egyptians in the Red Sea and taking care of them. He's even giving them food. Every day he's giving them food, manna. And finally, they, but they get tired of it. They start complaining about it. And it's kind of that, the best way I understand this when I read this because, I mean, he gets pretty upset. You're gonna figure that out in a minute. Uh, it's like, you know, sometimes when my kids in the store, it's like, you walk by the $10 toy and, you know, it's just not the right time. Or you're not going to do that. And they start complaining and it's the end of the world. And you're sitting there thinking, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, I provide everything for you. And you're just going crazy about it. And, you know, come on, parents. You know what I mean? Sometimes you're like, unbelievable. I just bought you five toys last week or so. You know what I mean? God has that kind of reaction to the children of Israel. Like, are you kidding me? I've given you everything. You walked across the sea, right? You should never forget that. And now there's food. There's never a shortage and you're complaining. And so God decides, you know what? Um, modern day, you know, instead of getting grounded or time out or spanking, whatever, he just decides to send poisonous snakes into the camp. Seriously, read it, read about it. And they start biting people. I'm gonna tell you what, I just straightened up real fast. And not been complaining at all for me. They're biting people. Like, what do we do? What do we do? And so God told Moses, make this bronze serpent and put it out there to be held up. And when people see that serpent, the bronze serpent, when they put their eyes upon it, they will be healed from their, their snake bite. What is God trying to communicate? God is a God who provides a way. He always provides a way. That's the narrative. I just grabbed a few stories. The second thing I want you to see is that undeniable design number two is substitute. Substitute. This is important for us to see. If we're trying to understand what is God doing in the Old Testament. So I, 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 did a, I didn't do this video. I wish I did this video. But I, there's, there's, a, there's a team of guys that do videos that I think are phenomenal in helping us. And it's just the way we learn today, visually even more. And so watch this video as I set this point up. We all long for the world to be good. 
for people to live in peace, act with love and justice. But there's a problem. Something compels us humans to constantly wreak havoc and destruction instead, and we call this evil. And from the Bible's point of view, evil ruins things in at least two ways. There's a direct effect of our evil, like when someone steals from another person, they've created injustice. Hey. Yeah, therefore, you know, they owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil, because they've also ruined the environment of the relationship, creating a lack of trust, there's emotional damage. It's like vandalism, and they need to make that right, too. Now, many people believe, hey, God is good. He should be the one to just get rid of all the evil in the world. But let's be honest. I mean, the evil that I see everywhere out there, it's the same evil that's inside of me. We have all contributed, and, and we keep doing it. And so this kind of puts us in a bind. If God's going to rid the world of evil, he'll have to get rid of us. And this is what's so remarkable about the story of the Bible. This God is so good that not only is he going to rid the world of evil, he's going to do it without destroying humanity. So how is he going to do that? Well, early in the story of the Bible, we're introduced to this practice of animal sacrifice, which I know, it seems weird to us, but for the Israelites, it was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and of his grace. So remember, I'm a contributor to the evil that's in the world. I should be removed. But God is allowing this animal's life to be a substitute. It's symbolically dying in my place. And the biblical word for this is atonement, which means to cover over someone's death. But there's a second part to this ritual. Remember, evil also causes this relational vandalism. And in the Bible, this idea is described as polluting or defiling the land and making it unclean. So the priest would symbolically wash away the vandalism by sprinkling the animal's blood in different parts of the temple. So the animal's blood is cleaning things? Well, remember, this is a symbol, and it's a symbol that we're not used to. The blood represents life. And the sprinkling of the blood is this representation of how God is cleaning away these indirect consequences of evil in their community. In the Bible, this process is called purification. And so the temple and the land now become a clean space where God and his people can live together in peace. So this ritual makes things right between Israel and God. And more than that, the Israelites experience God's love and his grace through these symbols. And by being forgiven, ideally, this would compel them to become people of love and grace too. Right, that's the ideal, but it wasn't always happening. Right. So the prophet Isaiah, for example, he talks a lot about this. He opens his book by saying that the continual sacrifices of the Israelites had become meaningless because they were also allowing great evil in their midst, ignoring the poor and the oppressed. Even the Israelite kings were distorting justice. But Isaiah looked forward to a day when a new king from the line of David would come and deal with evil, but in a surprising way. The king would become a servant and not just serve, but also suffer and die for the evil committed by his own people. And his life would be offered as a sacrifice. And this is the promise Jesus believed he was fulfilling. He's the king of Israel suffering and dying on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself used Isaiah's words when he said that he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom refers to a sacrifice of atonement. And so all over the New Testament, we hear about how Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for us. 
it covered the debt that humans owe God for contributing to all of the evil and death in his world. But the New Testament authors also talk about Jesus' death as providing purification. And so we hear about Jesus' blood as a symbol of his life, having this ability to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in us and around us so we can now live at peace with God. So that's the meaning behind Jesus' death. But there's more to the story. Yeah, the New Testament makes this powerful claim that Jesus' death was not final. He rose from the dead. And so he's the sacrifice who broke the power of death and evil, which means that he lives on to offer his life to anyone who will accept it. He is the perfect sacrifice to which all the previous sacrifices were pointing all along. You see all through, you're reading that, you saw it happen over and over. What does it mean? What's it pointing to? It's God's design in bringing us, one, to realize that there's a need for forgiveness and that we're lost and broken. We, we inherently know that. We, we feel that. We, we do stuff to try to make that right. And our world is full of that. And in that time, they would sacrifice uh, animals. And, and he was trying, one thing, pointing for the fact that he was the substitute. He designed it all that way to point to him. It's an undeniable design. The third thing um, is the undeniable design number three would be providence. I was gonna take some time and go through the Old Testament how God absolutely kept his hand providentially on people and events and things and he he made a promise about his people, Israel, and he came through every time and, and made sure that they were not destroyed and that they actually got to come back to their land after they were taken captive. And, and ultimately, they were the vehicle for which he was gonna bring Jesus. There's story after story after story that we lean on and look to and we understand, wow, that was God's providence. He was working out his plan, his design. But you know what, this day, Palm Sunday, signifies that even greater. Because we look at the palm branches and him riding on a donkey and him receiving praise and all that, and we think, wow, that's pretty cool and it fulfills some Old Testament prophecies. But really what it was, was a carefully choreographed plan by God. He knew, and what he did was, he, he waited, he, he, he knew that, Okay, so I'm gonna wait and Lazarus is gonna die and I'm gonna raise, I'm gonna wait four days and I'm gonna show up and raise him from the dead. Most of us think, wow, that's just a, another miracle and sign and wonder that Jesus did. No, it was far greater than that. It was the plan and design of God because I'll tell you what, if somebody in our town raised some from, somebody from the dead, it would make the front page news. And we would show up and find out what in the world's going on, right? And he's on purpose, he knows, I've got to make it so these people reach this enthusiasm about me. He's been in Jericho, he's been with Zacchaeus, he's been healing blind people. People are now coming by the hundreds of thousands to Jerusalem, to the Passover. They all have the same passion. They want to see their people, the Jewish people, 
freed from Roman oppression. They were under Roman rule and they, they desired to be broke free from that. And they knew that a promised Messiah was, was coming at some point. And in their minds, they thought, well, when he comes, he's gonna break us free and we get our own land back and we get to be our own people. And now we see this guy who's doing these wonders and signs and miracles and he's raising guys from the dead. And, and you know, and they begin to believe this is the guy, this is the guy. And Jesus knew all of that. In fact, he carefully designed and planned it. He said, you know what? I'm, I know there's gonna be hundreds of thousands of people. I'm gonna do some crazy things because, and I'm gonna even let them ride me in on a donkey and sing this stuff and proclaim on Messiah. He said, I'm gonna build them way up until they're so full of, of, of hope and expectation and enthusiasm that, I mean, they are just ready to go. They're ready to fight. They're ready to overthrow the Roman government. And they're gonna believe that I'm the one. On Sunday, they're gonna believe that but then I'm gonna come into the town that week and I'm gonna do nothing about that. I'm gonna actually talk about things like a new command I have for you, that you love one another and, and all this stuff that he talked about in, in that last week and I'm gonna get them so enthused and believing in me and then I'm gonna do what I do and what I'm about and it's gonna absolutely disappoint them so much that they're gonna be so disillusioned and angry with me that they're gonna be willing on Friday to say, Crucify that guy. Crucify that guy. Because Jesus knew all along what I need to really do is I need to go to the cross. I'm gonna be the king of kings and lord of lords, but it's gonna be through the cross, and it's not gonna be now. But I gotta get them to a point where they're willing to do that. Do you see how he carefully designed all of that so that they were willing to yell. The same ones that, what did we read in prayer, Ken? That all of them followed Jesus. Five days later, they're yelling, crucify him, crucify him. He's a fraud, he's a fake, he's not the Messiah. That's what God always does. He brings about his plan. He providentially designs. And that's what he did so that you and I could experience the reality of him dying on the cross and him rising from the grave, providing for our salvation. It's undeniable through the Old Testament he providentially worked. And even on this last week, he providentially designed it so he could do what he needed to do for us. And that's why I say it's great. It's an undeniable fact. I grab a hold of that. But the more I see that, you know what? It was something that God had designed and planned for all along. Because God understands exactly what we need and where we are at. That's who he is. This whole deal is just a, it's just a, it's the big picture of the small pictures every week in every life. God knows God cares, God is working, God has a plan. And this should remind me when I'm sitting there thinking, well, does God care? Where's God at? Or what's he doing? Or why did this happen? Or what am I gonna do with that? Do you understand who God is? Can you not see? He's the God who undeniably design, has a, designs, he plans and that's what this week is all about. The resurrection is about a God who designed it. 
just didn't fall in his lap or he just didn't have a last minute thought or, oh, that would be a good plan. Let me hurry up and do that. It was before the creation of the world. He planned it and made it happen. And you and I should be confident that as we trust him, there is nothing that can stop his will or his plan in in our life if we're following him. Amen? Amen. Undeniable fact, undeniable design. Next week, we'll talk about an undeniable reality. That's what Easter is all about. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the one who lives in you and I. And we have experienced our own Easter in an unbelievable reality. Let's stand this morning. And just to humor me, just to irritate you a little bit, let's read that together, all right? The resurrection is an undeniable fact formed by an undeniable design that leads to an undeniable reality. Father, go with us this week. May we enjoy uh, what you've done for us. May we take it so much to heart, especially in this time. Bless each one each home, each person, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, have a great week.